Thank you so much, Eric, for uh, that special music and the theme this morning. If you take your Bible, turn to the book of 1 Kings. We'll start a new series today here at the beginning of the year, 1 Kings chapter 11. One second here. 1 Kings chapter 11. You know, compromise is one of those things that can easily, easily fool us. We make these small concessions without realizing uh, that we've made large concessions. And that, that's the problem with, with compromise. Uh, I don't know how many of you have heard there's an Arab proverb that says, if, you let the ca- if the camel once gets his nose in the tent, his body will soon follow. That's, a, that's a kind of a funny image of a camel getting its nose under the tent and then, uh-oh, here he comes. He's going to ruin everything. And uh, I think that's, that's an important thing to think about as we look at this text this morning, this idea of when we make concessions or when we make compromises, how that fools us. That's why the title of this message this morning is Unmasking Compromise. We're going to see the deceptiveness of compromise and how it messes with what I'm focusing a lot on today is the word affections. Now, the word affection is not a word we use every day, but it's the idea of what you set your heart on and love. What is it that you love? What is it that you adore? What is it you set your affections upon? You set your mind upon? You set your heart upon? What is it that you want more than anything else? As we talk about these little lies of compromise, they, the little lies that little change doesn't hurt anybody, it's the, the mask that deceives us into giving an inch before it takes a mile. Before we get into our text this morning, I want to give you a little bit of background. We have here, of course, the nation of Israel, the story of the nation, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God makes covenant and makes promise with these people, and shortly after they settle there in Canaan, the people had a lot of difficulties. We see issues with them worshiping false gods after they come out of the nation of Egypt and are rescued from their their slavery. Of course, they they worship false gods often, and we see in the book of Judges, we see the oppression from other nation states uh, and other wicked kings that oppress them. God raises up these judges to fight on their behalf, and then eventually the cycle of judges continues until the nation of Israel gets a king, and the first king is, is not a success. His name is Saul, and he had some successes and some major failures. And Saul is in his disobedience to the Lord. God says, I will replace you with a king after my own heart, whom he brings in David. And David is the king who is the king of, of, of is the one par excellence. He's the one all the other kings look up to as the great king. And, and King David comes in and, and he establishes this united kingdom. We have this loyalty between David and the Lord. David shows great loyalty to God. David's son Solomon takes his father's rule and expands his reign and then builds the temple of the Lord, something God would not allow David to do, but then let Solomon do. But, but you know, his success in his kingdom was large, much larger even than David's, but the cracks in the foundation of his leadership were beginning to form very early on, and it began when the king allowed his heart to love and pursue things other than the Lord. Let's bow for prayer, and then we'll see what God has to say in this passage today. Father, we are grateful for uh, all of your Scripture, especially as we gather here this morning. As I've been spending a lot of time this week in 1 Kings, we're grateful for these stories that reveal the heart of man and the heart of God. Lord, you show us yourself in these passages. You show us your mercy and your justice. And Father, we thank you for giving us these stories, your stories in the Bible, that tell us a lot about truth and tell us truth itself. Father, we ask you this 
morning as we gather, we open your word and we read it. I pray we would be transformed by it, that we would submit our hearts to you fully, uh, that we would be willing to go where you say go and do what you say to do, and that we would, we would strive to have an affection, a heart that is drawn to loving you fully. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. The main storyline of 1 Kings begins with the reign of Solomon and ends with the nation's exile into Babylon. We have this as the big picture storyline of the book of 1 and 2 Kings, and God is chastening throughout His mostly disobedient children and teaching them how they should follow and worship Him. Let's look at this chapter, really, we see here the end of Solomon's reign as we are, our theme for this. These next many messages are going to be on the divided kingdom, the divided kingdom. In fact, I'm calling this, this, this uh, series God's Word to a Divided Kingdom because the main theme that is established in these books and these chapters is God's continual revelation of His Word to His people, even though they are disobedient. Let's take a look at these verses beginning in verse 1. It says, but King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughters of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor are they with you. Surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. First thing I want you to notice as we see clearly here is the danger of compromise. What danger does compromise show us? What does it do? As we unmask it one layer at a time, the first danger we see of compromise is that compromise starts small but grows. Moral compromise begins with small concessions, things we think that do not matter that much. And that begins with the sins of the heart. You notice the source of the problem as we look at verses 1 and 2. It says that King Solomon loved many foreign women. He loved these daughters of Pharaoh, daughters, women of the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites, the Sidonians, the Hittites. These are pagan nations whom Solomon was loving the women who came, or who he was able to marry because of these political uh, arrangements. It was very logical for an ancient king to marry into these arrangements so as to make sure there was peace among the people. But these small concessions, things that did not seem like a big deal to him at the time, became a huge problem. Sin always starts small and then grows. The source of the problem was what he loved. In fact, if you look at Deuteronomy 17, 17, God had already told them that kings were not to do this kind of thing. He says, kings, neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. Solomon had done both of these. He had accumulated massive wealth. He'd accumulated a bunch of wives to himself. And in doing so, his heart had turned away from God. Solomon did exactly what God said not to do, and he married women who were not followers of the Lord. Notice how it describes what he does here in his marriages. Look at, look at verse, um, verse 2. At the end of verse 2, it says, uh, Solomon clung to these in love. The Bible is very clear. The only person we should cling to and love is our God. 
He had exchanged clinging to the Lord in love to clinging to people. And I believe anything can take the place of God. Anything can become an idol in a person's life. Your spouse or your boyfriend, your girlfriend could take the place of God very quickly. and You can end up chasing things that are not God and putting God on the back burner. This is a huge danger. In fact, we see this in Deuteronomy chapter 10. God tells us, you shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve Him, and to Him you shall what? Hold fast. This is the same word, cling. Solomon held fast or clung to these women instead of clinging to the Lord. Solomon made a lot of pro- had a lot of problems here with the, the source of these problems. Notice was his heart. They will turn away your heart after their God. Sin always begins on the inner man. It begins inside your heart. You don't just do things. You think things and you believe things, and then your sins work themselves out of your inner man. The heart, the Bible word heart, is the idea of the center of human emotion, the center of human thinking. And God says your heart is where things begin. It's your affections, it's your love, it's what you love. And what you love with your heart is what you choose to care about. Let me tell you, you can tell what you love by what you pursue. And in our world today, people pursue all kinds of things. We should be pursuing the Lord. The compromise starts small but grows. Notice the growth of the problem, verses 3 and 4. He had 700 wives, 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. Things got carried away, you could say. Solomon, who started small by loving these foreign women, just kept adding them to his harem. In fact, in the book of Ecclesiastes, he writes this, "'Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure.'" For my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my labor. I looked on all the works that my hands had done, all the labor which I had toiled. Indeed, it was vanity and grasping after wind. There was no profit under the sun. Let me tell you, if you think that another person will satisfy you, listen to Solomon here who pursued this to extremes and found that it was all vanity and chasing after wind. Like anything with the flesh, Giving in to this lust did not quench his desire. It only inflamed it. Solomon became worse and worse, and his problem grew over time. Look at verse 4. So it was when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord, his God, as was his father David. Notice that he here was loyal no longer to God. That, that as he was, rather than drawing closer to God in his old age, he drew further from God. That is a danger. You can be a Christian your entire life, and you can love God in your youth, and as you get old, you can start making compromises. And it doesn't take a lot of compromise for the arc over time to be drastically further off than it was when you started. It just takes a little change, and over a long period of time, unless you repent, unless you change your mind, you will see your life going in a totally different direction than you anticipated, which is exactly what happened to Solomon in his old age. It says, in his old age, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal. The compromise starts small but grows. Notice the second truth here about the danger of compromise is that compromise will turn you from a tolerator to a celebrator. I don't know any other way of saying this, but you look at Solomon was not just one who put up with this in his own house. He not only was one who said, okay, you can have this kind of worship of other gods. He actually progressed or regressed away from God, ended up chasing other gods. Look at verse 5. Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. 
Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not fully fully follow the Lord as did his father David. Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, on the hill that is east of Jerusalem, for Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. He did likewise for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Verses 5 and 6 tell us these false gods who Solomon worshipped. It calls them Ashtoreth, Milcom, Chemosh, Molech. These are foreign gods. These are demonic gods. And worshipping these gods was not like going to a different church, okay? This is not like Solomon stopped going to his church and started going to a different church. This is a wildly different form of worship. This kind of worship was characterized by child sacrifice, by human sacrifice, by pagan rituals of sexual gratification and gross immorality that would go on all the time at these temples. This was not just another uh, church or another way of worshiping. This was a completely different worship, a completely different God. And Solomon not only became okay with it, it says he started building places for them to worship. It, took, it did not happen immediately. It happened over time. Think about how far Solomon had fallen. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. And in verses 7 and 8, it tells us he built these high places for these false gods. He moved from being just one who tolerated this in his house to being one who built places. He celebrated, he participated in these pagan worship practices. Oh, how this grieved the Lord. Oh, how this grieved the Lord that he enabled this kind of worship. And as I was working through this, I actually came to this point and I thought to myself, is compromise really the right word? I mean, is compromise, is it not just disobedience that what Solomon did? Maybe we could say that compromise is is not the right word, but I think compromise is probably good because I think when Solomon made these decisions that sent them on this path, he did not realize how far it would take him. He had made decisions early that had drastic impact into his future. And I think this was a sneaky sin that Solomon was surprised by. A couple applications here as we wind up this first point. First, Solomon allowed his affections to distort his loyalties. Solomon had allowed his affections, what you choose to love, what you choose to love, what what captures your heart will change and will affect what you are loyal to. The Bible tells us to set your mind on things which are above. Where is your mind set? What captures your heart? What stirs your emotions? Solomon had allowed his affections to distort. I don't think Solomon would have done this without the influence of these people in his life. Yes, he chose to have these foreign wives, but when he chose to allow his heart to be carried away by these foreign wives, he was choosing this sin. The Bible tells us and warns us, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What fellowship is unrighteousness? A righteousness with lawlessness. What communion has light with darkness? We need to be careful about where we allow our hearts to connect. Solomon had allowed his affections to distort his loyalties. Has anyone been more blessed than Solomon in the Bible? No. Solomon was the wisest man. God gave him wealth and wisdom. He gave him a kingdom. He's a son of Solomon. What great blessings he has. Covenant loyalties involve two things. It involves the blessings, but it involves the responsibility on the other side. And Solomon failed in his responsibility, and he was not loyal to the Lord. And as loyalties disappeared, so would the blessings disappeared. Solomon had allowed his affections to distort his loyalties. Secondly, we'll see God's correction for the compromise. God would not allow the compromise to stand. The covenant between the Lord and his king had been violated. Solomon would have to face the consequences of his sin. As has been said many times from this pulpit, you can choose your sin, but you cannot choose the consequences of your sin. 
That's exactly where Solomon finds himself. We find God correcting. How would God correct? Let's look at verse 9 and see. It says, so the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned from the Lord God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice, and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go to other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord had commanded. Notice that God warns. God warns. It's interesting, the word angry here, God is angry. It's only associated in the Bible with divine anger, God's anger. God is angry with sin. It displeases Him. Often, sin only offends us or it bothers us, but sin made God angry. I wonder, does sin make you angry? Sin made God angry. God was righteously angry with sin, and when God is angry, judgment comes after it. What is this major sin that He is angry with? It says, the Lord became angry with Solomon because what? Because his heart had turned. The major sin that he had was his heart, his affections, his love for God. It turned away from God. And so God said, I will not allow this to stand. Notice as you continue, it says that God had warned him twice. God had appeared to him twice, had commanded him concerning this thing. He should not go after other gods. And he did not keep what the Lord commanded. God warned him, and God warns us too in his word. But God then removes. God warns and God removes. After doing the work of warning, God acts. He removes the blessing and the benefits. Look at verse 11. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, because you have done this, here's the tie-in. He says, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing, because you have done this. Because you have done this, have not kept my covenant, my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear this kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. God, God says, because you've done this, you've gone after other gods, you have not kept your covenant, and you have not kept the rules that have commanded God said, I will tear the kingdom away from you. I will rip it away from you. The word, like the tearing of a cloth, like when people would mourn, they would tear tear their clothes. He says, that's what's going to happen to you because of the compromise you've engaged in. God, more than just tearing it away from you, I'm going to give it to someone you know. I'm going to give it to your servant. As you keep going, God not only warns and removes, but in His wrath and in His judgment, God always shows mercy. This is an amazing point that God, in His anger, shows mercy. Look at verse 12. He says, nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father, David. I will tear it out of the hands of your son. However, I will not tear away the whole kingdom. I will give one tribe of your son to the sake of my servant, David, for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Isn't it amazing that even in the midst of his chastening and even in the midst of God's dealing with sin, God has mercy? God has mercy and God shows mercy in the midst of his judgment. In fact, tonight we're preaching about the story of Noah, and the story of Noah demonstrates, again, God's mercy in the midst of judgment. God is a merciful God, and here God recalls back to the covenant he made with David. He says, I made a covenant with David. I will not go back on this covenant I made with David. Because of David, I will not take the whole covenant or the whole land from you. I will take these kingdoms away, but you will keep Judah, you will keep Jerusalem. God shows mercy. In fact, this reminded me of this prayer in Habakkuk chapter 3. The prophet Habakkuk says, O Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of years. In the midst of years, make it known in wrath. Remember mercy. When God is judging a people and when God is showing his wrath, we can pray, God, remember mercy. I think that's a good prayer for our country. Lord, in wrath, remember mercy. God will chasten and God will correct those who allow their affections to distort their loyalties. 
We see this very clearly that God will not allow disloyalty to go unchastened. He will discipline you if you follow the same path. And I warn you, friends, many of you have lost your first love when it comes to the Lord. You have compromised your faith. You've compromised your morals. And maybe it didn't seem like a big deal at the time, but over time it has developed into a massive problem. And God says in His Word over and over again that He will chasten us if He loves us. In fact, in Hebrews 12, verse 5, it says, Have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons, my son? Do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by Him. For whom the Lord loves, He chastens and scourges every son whom He receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. What son is there whom a father does not chasten. God will deal with, God will address, and God will correct compromise. How are you responding to that correction in your life? Number three, we see the consequences of compromise. We see two big things happening here. The first one is that instead of blessing, we have opposition instead of blessing. Opposition. The first one we have opposition from here is Hadad or Hadad, depending on how you want to say his name. Look at verse 14. It says, and I want you to notice, if you have a pencil or pen, you might want to underline some of these words. Notice how it says, now the Lord raised up. That's key. The Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad or Hadad the Edomite, who was descendant of the king of Edom. Now, he was an adversary against Solomon. You know what the word adversary is? It's the word Satan. In English, we say Satan. He says he raises up an accuser, an adversary, an opponent, someone who is like Satan against Solomon. And this Satan he raises up is called Hadad. And Hadad is an Edomite. And he's an enemy of the Lord. And Solomon's efforts to create peace between his kingdom and the Edomites had not worked. Remember, some of the the women who he took into his kingdom were from Edom. And so here, he has tried on his own way to make peace, but it doesn't work. Notice back in verse 1, it says, he took of the daughters of the Moabites, the Ammonites, the what? Edomites. And now we have an Edomite here who God raises up to bring opposition instead of blessing. Edomites, by the way, are descendants of Esau. We see this problem all the way earlier in the book of Genesis. Verse 15, for it happened when David was in Edom. Why was this? Why did this uh, Edomite come out against Solomon? We'll find out here. David was in Edom, and Joab, the commander of the army, had gone up to bury the slain. He had killed every male in Edom. Because for six months, Joab remained there with all Israel until he had cut down every male in Edom. But Hadad fled to go to Egypt. He and certain Edomites of his father's servants with him. Hadad was still a little child. He and his father fled to Egypt to, uh, to escape David's um, armies who were there. And while he was there, uh, while, while the commander was destroying the men of Egypt, once in Egypt, the Egyptian and political leadership took him in and embraced him. Look at verse 18. Then he arose from Midian, came to Paran, and they took him. They took men with him from Paran and came to Egypt. And Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, who gave him a house, apportioned food for him, gave him land. And Hadad found great favor in the sight of Pharaoh, so that he gave him his wife as a sister. The wife uh, the, uh, he gave as a wife, a sister of his own wife, that is a queen, uh, Taphanes, 
Verse 20, then the sister of Taphanes bore him Ganuba, a son, whom Taphanes weaned in Pharaoh's house, and Ganuba in Pharaoh's household among the sons of Pharaoh. Basically, Hadad goes to Egypt, finds success there, and, is, and, is, and raises up political power there outside of his own place. And an alliance began to form between the Edomites and the Egyptians during David and Solomon's reign, something that was happening under David's nose he didn't know about. Something that was happening under Solomon's nose he had no clue and it says in verse 21 that as David died, it says, when Hadad heard that Egypt, that David rested with his fathers, and that Joab, the commander of the army, was dead, Hadad said to Pharaoh, let me depart, that I may go into my own country. And Pharaoh said, what have you lacked with me, that suddenly you go seek your own country? He said, nothing, let me go away. So God had protected Solomon from his enemies while Solomon had been faithful to worship the Lord. But now that he had given his affections away to idols, God slowly was removing his protection and raising up enemies. Opposition instead of blessing. There was another one. There was opposition from a man named Rezin, who was in Syria. Now, if you know where, where, uh, where Egypt is, that's in the south, right? And they were in Paran in the wilderness there. They were in the southern region uh, of Israel and Judah. Now, if we go to Syria in the north, in the northeastern side of Syria, we have this man named Rezin. God raised up another adversary. There's your second underline. God raised up another adversary against him, Rezin, the son of Elida, who had fled from his lord, Hadazizer, king of Zobah, and when he gathered men to him, he became captain over a band of raiders. When David killed those in Zobah, they went to Damascus and dwelt there. That's Syria. They reigned in Damascus. He was an adversary of Israel all the days of Solomon, besides the trouble that Hadad caused. For he abhorred Israel, and he reigned over Syria. They reigned in Damascus, and he hated Israel. This is the kind of people that God was raising up against Solomon as punishment for his wickedness, as punishment for his compromise. We see opposition instead of blessing. God could have blessed Saul. But time and time again in his opposition, God chose instead to raise up these enemies. Then we see division instead of unity. First, we have a prophecy from the, about this divided kingdom, and we have a man named Jeroboam. In verse 26, we see, then Solomon's servant, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite from Zerida, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, also rebelled against the, thing, the, the king. The final rebellion against Solomon came not from the south, not from the north, but from within his own kingdom. His servant, who ruled with him or who served him, was a good man and was trustworthy. Look at verse 27. What kind of man would this have been? It says, this is what caused him to rebel against the king. Solomon had been building Milo and the repair of the damages of the city of David his father, the man Jeroboam, was a mighty man of valor. Solomon, seeing that the young man was industrious, made him an officer over all the labor force of the house of Jacob. Or, I'm sorry, of the house of Joseph. So Solomon is having a building project here, and as he does this building project in Milo and repairing Jerusalem, he proves to be a mighty man of valor, a title that someone who is a leader among men. Jeroboam is this kind of military leader. He is an administrator as well. So he places him, notice this phrase, he places him over all the labor force of the house of Joseph. And this is a problem. Because what Solomon is doing is he is creating additional issues within his own kingdom, without, maybe without even realizing it. Because here he takes uh, Jeroboam, who's from Ephraim in the north. And the building programs involve forced labor, slave labor, of his own people, the house of Joseph. And what are they doing? Where are they building? They're building in Jerusalem in the south. 
And he is creating a division between the people in the north and the people in the south. And Solomon is using uh, labor from people who have no business or, or don't, don't know any better or, or can't say no, I should say it that way, coming south and working for him. He's creating a rift that will be exploited later. Then God sends a prophet. And there's where the word of the Lord comes in. Look at verse 29, because this theme develops throughout the book, as you'll see as we go through this book. The word of the Lord is sent. God sends a prophet named Ahijah. He's a Shilonite, which is from Shiloh, one of the important places where worship of the Lord took place. He comes to Jeroboam and gives him a word from God. It says they meet on the field, verse 29, and Ahijah, verse 30, took hold of a new garment that was on him and tore it in 12 pieces. He said to Jeroboam, take for yourself 10 pieces, for thus says the Lord God of Israel, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and give 10 tribes to you. This was a prophetic sign act. He is demonstrating what God's going to do, very common in the Old Testament. So Ahijah's wearing this brand new garment. He walks out, he meets uh, Jeroboam. He tears his garment into 12 different pieces. And he says, this is to fulfill the prophet. This is to show you what's going to happen. You're going to receive 10 tribes. You, a servant of Solomon, are going to be leading 10 tribes. Why? Look at verse 33. Because they have forsaken me and worshiped Ashtoreth the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, Milcom, the god of the people of Ammon, and have not walked in my ways to do what is right in my eyes or keep my statutes and my judgments as did my father David. Notice how these are connected. Forsaking God is connected with worshiping something other than God and living in disobedience to God. Worship is directly connected to disobedience. Worship the wrong thing, you'll end up in disobedience. He repeats again his desire. God says, I will not completely abandon this because I have made a covenant with David. But I want you to tell, uh, look, at verse, uh, look at verse 37. He says, I will take you and you shall reign, still speaking to Jeroboam, all, over all your heart's desires and you shall be king over Israel. Then it shall be if you heed all that I command you. Walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight to keep my commandments and statutes as my servant David did. Then I will be with you and build an enduring house as I built for David and give Israel to you, and I will afflict the ascendants of David because of this, but not forever. Notice what he says. He says, Jeroboam, if you follow me, I will bless you. If you do what I say, I will give you an enduring house. I will give you an enduring house just like I gave David, if you follow me. And we get to find out in the next few chapters, does Jeroboam follow the Lord? Does he choose to live out this command that God has given him, this promise that God has given him? What an opportunity that God says, I will bless you if you but follow me. The consequences of Solomon's sin would be the things that God had given him would be taken away from him. God divided instead of unified here. Solomon had used the gifts of God for his own benefit. He had stopped worshiping the Lord who had given him these gifts. God deserves to be the single focus of our worship and the highest object of our affection. No love should or could ever overwhelm our love for the Lord. We must be singly minded in this way. This passage, a couple things in conclusion, teaches us a lot about human nature. It teaches us a lot about ourselves. Whether or not we're willing to admit it, it teaches us that it's easy for our hearts to be stolen away to pursue idols. Uh, Christian, you could be uh, loving the Lord today and pursuing idols tomorrow. 
It could be a small thing. Small decisions make a big impact. Do not let your heart be compromised to pursue that which is not worth worshiping. The second thing it demonstrates is that we are fickle people. Human beings are fickle people who quickly forget the goodness and mercy of God who saved us. Isn't it true? I mean, Solomon was so blessed. What a great God he served. What a wonderful, loving God he served. Yet what does he do? He turns his heart away. But this, this passage not only teaches us about the character of man, it teaches us about the character of God. And here's how it does that. First, God's wrath, which comes against the sin, we're told in the Bible, has been fully absorbed by Christ on the cross. And we will never experience the full wrath of God. And God, who shows kindness as He chastens us, we never get the full brunt of what we deserved. God's mercy is great. God's mercy and His judgment is great. And God judged Christ on the cross, so we don't have to receive that judgment. Not only that, we, we learned this lesson of worship, that what our hearts pursue We ask ourselves, what is the highest object of our affection? Even those who worship the Lord for a long time can drift away from worshiping God into worshiping and prioritizing other things. I have a simple question to ask you. What is it you build your life around? That is what you worship. What is it you build your life around? Is it your children? Is everything about your children? Guess what? You might be worshiping your children. Is it your job? You might be worshiping your job. Is it that loved one? Is that spouse you might be worshiping that person? Is it your career? Is it your, your hobbies? What is it you build your life around? As we unmask compromise, we need to ask ourselves, we need, to, we need to recognize the deceptive nature of this. In this moment, Solomon did not realize where he had set his heart, but the consequences were drastic. I have a couple questions as I was thinking towards the end here is that why do people compromise? Well, I think a lot of times the reason people compromise is two reasons. Number one, sometimes because they want to be accepted among other people. They want, they want love and acceptance from other people. But recognizing that we've been accepted by Jesus Christ, we've been accepted by God through Christ, means that we don't have to pursue acceptance from other people. Another reason people sometimes compromise is because they don't take sin seriously. They think very little of sin. They think, oh, it's not a big deal. Come on, you're making too much of pro- you're making a big deal about nothing. It's not a big deal. God makes a big deal out of sin. God makes a very big deal out of sin. That's why Christ came to die on the cross. He sent his son to die on the cross, and that's how much God hates sin. So why would we compromise? Why would we let the camel's nose under the tent? Why would we go that direction? It's so easy. But we need to be careful as Christians to recognize and unmask compromise for what it is. It's a lie that will deceive you into following the wrong path. Today, I beg of you as we set, begin this, this study in the book of 1 Kings, let's set our hearts where they ought to be and say, Lord, keep me from giving an inch. Help me love you with all of my heart and not pursue things that would draw me away from you. Let's bow for prayer and, and, and give our hearts to God now. Lord, we ask... I ask this for myself as well. Lord, I beg of you, please guard our hearts. Help us to keep our hearts with all diligence. Help us to worship you only. It's so easy to orient our life around other things. And today in this world, which is so distracting, with so many things that call out to us and call our name, so many things that are seemingly customized for our every desire. Father, help us to reject these things that would draw our heart away from you. 
Lord, we think of Solomon's example here of one who was deceived by compromise and faced a dramatic loss. Lord, we know that you are a merciful God. Even in times where you are chastening us, you do this in mercy. And so we love you and thank you for the chastening of your hand. But God, even in moments like this, we ask you please show us where we have fallen. Show us our sin. Show us what we have exalted above you that we may repent. It's so easy for us to become distracted. Help us to be single-minded, to worship the Lord alone. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Maybe you need to deal with the Lord here for a moment and say, Lord, I confess I have fallen after other things. I have worshiped other things. I have begun to orient my life around things that are not godly, and I need to confess that to you and ask for you to forgive me. I need the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ who took my place on the cross, who paid for my sins fully. I need that forgiveness today. You say, please, Lord, save me. If you've never been saved, you can come to him. He's one who offers salvation completely. Just to the one who believes, the one who calls upon him shall be saved. The Bible tells us that Jesus paid it all. He completed everything needed to be done on the cross for your sins. You never have to face the punishment for your sin. And today be the day where you call out on him and receive him as your Savior. Oh, believer, the one who's already called on Christ, guard your heart. Guard your heart. Father, as we work now, or as we pray now before you, our hearts are tender and we ask you to work. We ask you to show us where we've sinned so we may confess it and receive forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen. Charles is going to come lead us in a song as invitation. Song, I'll be down front if you'd like to pray, and then you can always pray in your seat. We beg of you, if there's something that you need to talk to somebody about, if you don't know the Lord is your Savior, on the blue card, you can definitely write on something there and ask somebody to talk to you. We'd love to connect with you afterwards. Prayer requests on the back of that blue card as well. We'll collect those in just a moment. But we're going to sing a song, Charles. 491. 491, which you take your blue book. Stand and